1 Corinthians 11, Paul now addresses the second of three major problems of worship practices in the Corinthian church. Here he is looking at their practice of the Lord's Supper. Times I mentioned that the sermon might be more of a nuts and bolts, and this is one of those. We look at the basics of our practice of the Lord's Supper. As we look to the reading of God's Word, though, if you would join me in prayer. Father, you know that we are dull of heart and prone to sin, prone to carelessness. And we ask then, Lord, that you would open our eyes to the truths of your gospel, that you would unplug our ears, that we might hear your word. And Father, that it would please you to transform us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Gracious God, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. And so we ask you to make us hungry for this heavenly food that would nourish us today in the ways of eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven, we pray. Amen. Beginning in verse 17, looking there to verse 25. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The word of the Lord. The Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, Communion, the Breaking of Bread, the Love Feast, and the Eucharist. The Eucharist is simply the Greek word which means giving thanks. All of these have been names that have been used to speak of this central Christian sacrament. And with such lofty names, it seems strange that within the Christian church, it has been so divisive. We're not going to solve all those problems here today. But the Lord's Supper is to be a unifying act that unites all believers together. The focus and the meaning is centered on Jesus and all that he has done. The visible word gives to us a picture of the gospel, the good news of salvation by grace alone. It points us back to the cross, even while it points us forward to Christ's glorious return. And through the supper, we are nourished and sustained by Jesus himself through the bond of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Our shared lives together are to reflect Jesus. And because Jesus invites us to his table, we are to practice, as it were, good table manners. So as we look this morning at applying the common principles that Paul is speaking of, we first have to understand the specific situation that he is in. And there have been several moments through Corinthians that we've seen this really large distance between ancient Corinth and ourselves that we have to overcome to properly understand Paul's letter. We looked earlier at meat offered to idols, and that was an everyday problem if you were a believer in Corinth, whether you were going shopping or simply going out to eat. 
That's an unusual one for us to think about. Roman and Jewish divorce proceedings look very different from ours. Worshiping with head coverings, which we looked at last week, a very strange thought to us. And here, their practice of the Lord's Supper is really removed from our experience. And so, again, to apply the common principles, we always have to understand the specific practices. And Paul is telling them that what they are doing is bringing more harm than good. Well, what exactly were they doing? He begins in verse 17, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. And he speaks in of divisions in the church, which we've already seen that from the very beginning. The church is divided, and that division goes into the supper as well. And he says there are many factions among you in order that there are those who are genuine may be recognized. And it's like he's speaking either ironically or with a, a mocking tone to, to speak of the problems that are there. But he says when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. You're doing something, and whatever you're doing, that's not what it is. It's something else. What are they doing? And here we're going to have to do a little bit of a historical reconstruction. The Lord's Supper was instituted by Jesus on the Passover just before he was handed over to be crucified. And in that, we recognize immediately that we do not reenact the Passover meal. Because Jesus fully recentered Israel's historic meal and its significance upon himself and his sacrificial death. Christian communion is not a Seder meal. And from this point forward, the Lord's Supper was an integral part of Christian worship. The two important elements were bread and wine shared together along with the words of instructions of Jesus. It was always part of a larger worship service which was preceded by the message of the word. And no doubt when this happened in the early days of Jerusalem when there were some three to 4,000 uh, converts, that would have been done quite simply. But when you take this into a setting where the church was really only a handful of believers in some places, this would change. You, you see that even in, in the book of Acts when they speak of the breaking of bread together. In some instances, the practice was a part of a common meal then shared together. And some have referred to this as a love feast. The very first full description of the Lord's Supper, it comes around 150 A.D. So about 100 years difference from here. Justin Martyr, a Christian who wrote about that, he, he wrote a, a fairly detailed description of what a worship service looked like. And the meal, the full meal, is absent. What changed? Probably due to persecution of the church in some areas, but largely just because they outgrew the ability to do so. So many were converted that it just became impractical to have an actual meal in a worship service. Yet the central elements that they shared have remained all the way to today. So it's in this early meal where Roman culture and practice comes in contact with these early Christians in Corinth. Some Christians may have met in a shop or, or some other location, but initially many of them met in the larger homes of wealthy members. Wealthy members, they actually have uh, dug up through archaeology homes in Corinth. So they actually know some of the sizes of these places. They had dining rooms that would hold 8 to 12 people in comfort. And then many of them had an atrium open to the air. And it was a larger dimension. It could hold some 10 to 20 people. 
So what it seems is that the Corinthians were just simply following their Roman dining practices. Those with higher social standing were given greater honor and would be a part of that inner sanctum group for dining. Those of lower status, they were at a distance. And if they were given food, it was certainly of a lower quality. They may have even had to bring their own food to eat. So the social elites of the church were tone deaf to their brothers and sisters of a lower status. That would help explain Paul's remarks in verse 21. For in eating, each one of you goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Paul reminds them, the Lord's Supper is not a social convention for having a meal together. It's not about filling your belly, but feeding your soul. That's the purpose. And he goes on in verse 22, he goes, What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you? No, I will not. They were living out this cultural divide within the church. The status of class. Now, I know as Americans, we have a, uh, a cultural dislike for any class treatment. We still have it, but most of the time, it's not quite so in your face. I'm sure maybe you've experienced this of boarding an airplane. You're waiting to board, and they have one lane there with an actual red carpet. And it's for premier first class and global partners. The rest of us use the lane right next to it without that dirty red carpet. It's, it's almost comical. People walking down there and then they put the little line and click. Now they open up the other side and you walk right next to it, but you don't get to walk over the red carpet. So class distinctions are alive and well with United Airlines. But through history, this distinction of, between classes has always been there in almost all cultures. These Corinthians were doing exactly what their culture taught them. Christianity is subverting this. And Paul is clearly telling them that the church is a new community with new standards, new values. The poor and the wealthy and everyone in between have equal access and equal participation within the church. And when our practices are separated from the intent and meaning behind them, it's harmful to us. The practice of the Lord's Supper run through the grid of their divisive culture was harmful to the church. And Paul is pointing this out. And we can do that with any good practice within the church. Whether it be a Bible study, be a prayer meeting. It could be family devotions. If your family worship and devotions turn into harsh and condemning practices, if in trying to teach your children catechism questions or Bible memory and it always devolves into tears and yelling... That's more harm than good. Change your practice or stop doing it. We, we don't want to continue to do things that harm us opposite of the intent that we start with. And Paul is, is pointing this out. He's correcting gross errors. And so the focus is understandably negative, but don't lose sight of the fact that the Lord's great gift to us in the church indeed is the Lord's Supper. Paul goes on uh, as he gives us really the only direct teaching of the New Testament on the Supper other than the Gospels. But remember, we have 66 books of the Bible before this that lay down a very good theology of the sacrament. 
It doesn't just start here. We have an entire Old Testament preparing us for what's taking place. And here Paul lays out the heart of our worship in his instruction. And he begins in verse 24, very common words to us. When Jesus had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup. And after supper, he said, this is the cup and the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And Paul adds, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And, and from this, there are many implications that we're not going to be able to go into all today. But we see that we are to be unified in the sacrament. We are to reflect Jesus who is at the head of the table, presiding over everything that goes on. This Jesus gave his life for his people. Therefore, our unity in Christ includes a care and a concern for others. It has to, if we are to reflect him. And we see, even as he speaks of this new covenant in my blood, that we are a new covenant community. And this means that we are included in the Lord's great grace to us. Jesus did what we could not. He upheld the covenant. He took upon himself the punishment for our breaking it. And so we remember what he has done. But this remembrance does not mean that we sit around thinking fondly of Jesus like we would a family member who died. You know, remember that time when we were playing cards with Uncle Bill and how wonderful that was? It is a wonderful memory. And it's indeed a good thing to reflect on. But that's not what we're doing here. Because Jesus is still alive. He's coming back. It says, until he comes. One writer tells us that we wait for Christ's return. We do so striving to be the community whose fellowship is marked by Jesus' self-sacrificing commitment to the well-being of others. That's a part of the reflection. That we indeed are self Sacrificing people for the well-being of others above ourselves. Our remembering is a real participation in him. Back in chapter 10, Paul, speaking of idolatry, but he makes this statement about the Lord's Supper there. He said, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for all partake of the one bread. Now, that speaks of the unity that we have in Jesus and a real participation in him. One of the difficulties that we have, at least historically in Christianity, is understanding exactly when he says, this is my body. That has been an ongoing source of controversy. Is this literally changed into the body and the blood of Jesus? Or is something else taking place? I'm going to shorten that entire debate down to something really small. Speak to me afterwards if you wish. I I do not think that the disciples eating this bread handed to them by Jesus would have thought that they were literally eating his very flesh and blood with him sitting at the table handing it to them any more than when Jesus said, I am the door or I am the vine, that he was speaking literally and not metaphorically. Jesus is truly and really present in the sacrament. 
We are united to Him by the wondrous working of the Holy Spirit, to be sure. And then in verse 27, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. One commentator referred to this as perjury. Perjury. The person makes a solemn oath through sharing in the pledges and the promise while having no serious involvement in them. And that is the danger. Anything we do that demeans or disrespect others is a sin against the body and the blood of Christ. And in the supper, we engage in the practices of Christ. We engage in the promises associated with them. And Christ died for his people to unite us together. And so if we dishonor them, we are dishonoring Christ. And then he goes on. He says, let a person examine himself and so eat and drink the cup. Well, how do we examine ourselves? Paul's not trying to frighten us away from ever taking the supper. He's addressing terrible abuses. Basically, he's saying, is your life in basic agreement with the new covenant that we profess? Not asking for perfection. It's saying, is your life in basic agreement with the very things that you are saying they profess? How do we treat others in the body of Christ? If there's a great discontinuity between this, Paul is warning us that we need to examine ourselves to bring ourselves to repentance where we are no longer in a line with the purposes of Christ. He goes on, he says, anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, the question always is, well, what does body refer to? Does it refer to Jesus specifically or to the church? Well, it can be either. In most cases, when it's ambiguous like that, it's generally best to understand both. Both are true, after all. You're sinning against Jesus himself and to those he's united to, the body of Christ. How we treat one another matters. Well, what does it mean then to bring judgment upon ourselves? You hear at different times, we'll speak of the Lord's Supper as a sign of covenant renewal. Now, a mark of a biblical covenant is an oath of harm or curse that is pledged if you fail to hold up your end of the covenant. We see that in the Old Testament. In the Supper, the new covenant is on display. Jesus upholds what we could not. We are then to receive that in faith. But if we do the opposite of what we are participating in, Paul is warning us, we bring judgment upon ourselves. Because we're doing just exactly contrary to what we're professing. In a similar way, if there is a, think of it like if there's a disaster, something takes place, and, and somebody comes through the disaster relief and starts handing out free bottles of food and water. And then you go and sell them to somebody that was given to you freely because they weren't in line. That is contrary to the gift that was given to you. In the same way, what you have received as a gift of forgiveness and reconciliation and unification, if you are now using that contrary to that, there's danger of judgment. Paul goes on to give an insight that we might not be able to make clearly ourselves. And as an apostle, he says this. 
Verse 30, that is why many of you are weak, ill, and some have died. That is striking to us. Our society has removed any thought of judgment as being unloving and unworthy of God. But I'm reminded of the words of C.S. Lewis who said, when poisons become fashionable, they do not cease to kill. Regardless of what you think about judgment as being outdated from a different era and that's not what God would do, it doesn't remove the fact that Scripture is very clear that there is judgment for this type of willful and unrepentant sinning. And and he wants them to know that because there have been serious consequences within the church for it. But Paul ends with a a hopeful reminder. He says, if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. That the Lord is, is disciplining them in order to teach and to instruct them. To, to bring about that heartfelt change. To demonstrate the reality of Christ in their church. Then he goes on, so my brothers, when you eat or come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give direction when I come. The meaning of the supper is to be carried out in how we practice the supper. And that's why we rightly refer to it as the visible word. The same good news that you and I profess is seen here on display. And so if we remove the importance of the preaching of the word from the Lord's Supper, it diminishes its very purpose. That's why it's done in in context of a worship service. The truth and a practice come together it's like if you sing happy birthday to someone all the time when it's not their birthday it's weird and it totally takes away the real celebration in its meaning you sing that when it's somebody's birthday and that is a part of the celebration the, the truth of that and the practice of that have to go together now The sign participates in what it points to. That is a biblical sacrament. Magical? No. Mysterious? Certainly. And there is a challenge of bringing together the joy and the celebration along with a sobriety and a seriousness. The supper is not a funeral. We don't play a dirge and have this solemn heaviness with the Lord's Supper. But it's also not a flippant carnival. A few years back, there was a, I think it was in New York, an Episcopal church, they celebrated, they called it a clown communion. The, the priests and everyone helping were dressed as clowns, full-on clown costs and the big noses and everything. And we rightly see that and shake our head and go, you've got to be kidding me. Absolutely not. How you're practicing is completely taking away from, from what is being signified. And Paul is addressing an abuse of the supper that is pretty far removed from our experience. But our hearts aren't. We, we struggle in similar ways in the heart. And we're not to be unduly scared or frightened of taking the supper, but we are to reflect and consider if we are in compliance 
with what the supper is pointing to and participating in. The shape, the pattern of our faith is reflected in the shape and the pattern of our participation. And in Jesus, we can bring great joy and celebration together with a soberness. We can reflect upon what he has done for us and the forgiveness of our sins, the weight of our condemnation placed upon him, along with the joy of receiving forgiveness and grace and mercy that fills our hearts with delight. As Christians, we have a capacity for both of those things to come together because that's what happens in the supper. The Lord has blessed us with such a tremendous gift a unity given to us as the people of God to share truly and really in Him, to sustain and to nourish us in our growth and grace, our commitment. And we are then to do all that we can in that practice to bring about the fullness of its intent, to be used by God as the gift it was intended to be. You'll pray with me. Father, indeed, we are so thankful that you have given to us a a visible word that we can see, that we can taste. Father, that indeed you are good and wonderful. And we ask, Lord, that you would forgive us where we have, Father, have perjured ourselves where the intent of your meal, of your gospel, was not the intent of our heart. And we ask, Father, by the powerful working of your Holy Spirit that he would continue to transform us into the image and the likeness of Jesus, that we would reflect Christ and how we love you and how we love one another. Lord God, that self-sacrificing, self-giving would be the mark of this body here. We pray and ask that all through Jesus, our risen Lord.